You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Good morning. I'm excited for a couple things. One, to see Jeremy Burt leading. And also, and also to have Fermin on the drums. Um, he plays with us in the afternoon every week, and almost every week. So it's just exciting to see uh, the participation. Um, it's Palm Sunday. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, but before we get into Palm Sunday, and today we're going to uh, uh, take a break from the Genesis series. But before we do that, I just have a question for you guys. How many of you like to drive? Like you enjoy the road? The drive, you're going down the sights, the different places, the smell. Okay, yes, good. How many of you again? Okay, there are more on this side than there are on this side. I don't know why. Okay, um, I like to drive, and uh, I started when I was about, well, in Paraguay, 14, 15 or so, um, but uh, it's been a few years. And I like to drive. I, I think I know how to stay in my lane. And, um, you know, I, um, when the light's green, I go through them usually. Um, light red, yellow, red, you slow down, stop. Um, when I go to the Fred Meyer parking lot, I can usually find my spot pretty quickly. Um, and I love my sweet wife. She's uh, a great, I love her. She just has a great heart. But sometimes she rides shotgun. A lot of times she rides shotgun. And when she rides shotgun, um, you know, um, I don't, I'm not as good a driver. At least, <laughs> at least that seems to happen. As she'll often suggest to me, you know, we're driving down the road, and uh, especially down Highway 84 towards Portland, oh, that lane's faster. You should move into that lane. Okay? And so, like, okay, so I'll move into that one. Or maybe I won't because I'm stubborn sometimes. Um, um, I know some of you are elbowing your spouse. <laughs> this isn't just a me thing, I know. Uh, so, you know, but, um, you know, we'll drive to the Fred Meyer parking lot or Costco. Oh, Costco, it's a big parking lot. And, uh, and she has this expectation of the perfect spot. And that's her expectation. It's not mine. It's her, it's her expectation. So I'll go and I'll find a spot and she'll say, well, why didn't you park over there or up into that row? Oh, oh, okay, so I'll, I'll keep looking. Anyway, um, it's interesting how we like to be in control and we don't like, don't like telling people, telling, having people tell us what to do. My, my wife has the greatest heart and all the right intentions, but still, when I'm not driving well or when I am driving well, I don't like being told what to do, right? Anyone else struggle with that? Okay, amen. Um, so... As we've been going through the book of Genesis, one of the things that we notice as we, as, as we looked at Abraham's life is that he's learning what it means to walk by faith. He's a man in process. And so this process begins, and as, as we look at his life, um, there are times when he makes terrible choices, uh, just awful choices, and the consequences are painful. And there are other times when he makes these amazing faith based choices, where he knows what God's will is, like when he leaves. God calls him to leave his homeland, and he promises a, 
uh, beautiful uh, or uh, a land that is his. Uh, or last week when we looked at the story of Isaac and Rebe- or, or uh, yeah Isaac and Rebekah, Abraham says, you know what? I I don't think it's right for you to marry one of the local women. Um, and uh, he sends his servant to go look for a wife in a distant land, someone who would be uh, Yahweh worshiping, someone who fears God, unlike the women where he was from. And we see that as he makes these types of choices, God blesses Abraham. If we go back, um, one of the things that we notice as we look in Genesis, and look at Abraham's story, or the, just look throughout all of scriptures, is that God faithfully keeps his promises. He faithfully keeps his promises. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God could have just relationally cut them off. He could have banished them without talking to them. Why waste his time? Instead, we see God who comes, pursues them, comes, finds them, and gently talks with them. He calls them from hiding and sadly goes through what they did wrong. He sadly communicates the consequences, but at the same time, even though they don't deserve it, he inserts a blessing, a promise. I believe it's the greatest promise in all of Scripture that that God makes with humankind, a promise of a redeemer, someone who would undo what happened in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, 14 through 24, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Oh, sorry, go back here. But he's talking to the serpent. And basically, um, in a few words, he tells the serpent that the woman, the Adam and Eve, are going to have children. He told them that the day they ate of it, they would die. And they did. They were separated from the source of life itself. They were separated from God. Um, Yet, he promises children. And he says that one of the descendants would undo the mess that was made in the garden. Undo the mess of separating from God. In this promise, we find the serpent would strike this redeemer, and in turn, the redeemer would crush his head. Later on, years down the road in the story of Abraham, we see God passing on the baton of promise. Abraham was one of her descendants. And so when God calls Abraham, he makes this promise to him. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And at the end of verse three, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. About 4,000 years later, if we fast forward, Matthew, the first gospel, the first book in the New Testament starts out with this line. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As the baton was passed on, it was passed on from the garden to Abraham and later on to David, King David, and 
the promise to him was that one of his descendants would sit on Israel's throne forever. So Israel has been waiting. The world has been waiting for a king, one who would bring right relationship between God and men. And here Jesus comes on the scene, but before he comes, another man comes, and his name is John. And John comes with a message from God, and the message from God is this, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And he goes out preaching, get ready, get ready, like a messenger before a king coming to a town. He basically goes, get ready, the king's coming. The town can't be a mess. It's got to be organized. And he's talking about this king who comes to people's hearts. And he comes, he's going to know people's lives. So the way you prepare for him is you repent. So John preached this message. And today as we begin the Easter series... We think about this Jesus who is the greatest promise fulfilled. This is Jesus. And today is Palm Sunday. It is a day when we remember this man named Jesus who entered Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago as the Messianic king offering peace. The coming of Jesus was, well, just mentioned he was preceded by John, but um, if we think about as he, as he comes into Palm Sunday, as he comes into Jerusalem, let's just look back a little bit just to get a better picture of it. Um, Jesus was coming from a town called Bethany, the place where he had raised his good friend Lazarus from the dead. There was a large crowd of people who actually witnessed, saw him do this. Not only that, but there were people who heard about it. And so Jesus had left and he had come back to visit Lazarus. And all these people said, I want to see I want to see this for myself. So they went out, they saw Jesus, they saw Lazarus, and many of the Jews believed in Jesus because of this. So um, he's coming from Bethany. And there is a crowd of Galileans, of people from Bethany, uh, people who went to see him. There's a crowd coming into Jerusalem. And uh, Jerusalem, someone said, it could be one to two million people. It's, it's a, it, there are a lot of people in town, but there's this commotion outside the city. And this, is, this brings us to Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there, uh, tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So as we go back, and we look 
at this passage, we find that Jesus sends two of his disciples to bring back a couple of donkeys. Um, it would be kind of like having a couple guys show up in your driveway and they want to take your cars. Okay, they're just going to take, take your cars. And it's interesting in the story is that um, the owner seems to be ready and says, it's for the Lord, it's for the master. Yeah, take them. So they take these two donkeys back. It's a mama donkey and a baby donkey, a Jenny and a foal. I, I learned those two words. I had to use them. Uh, just, they're pretty cool. Um, so a Jenny and a foal. And what's interesting, I grew up in Paraguay. Uh, we had horses growing up. And we had a donkey when I was a little kid. I don't remember that very much. But I do remember that um, there were times when we'd take the donkey and the donkey would pull a cart. And if the donkey didn't want to do something, you weren't going to convince it otherwise. It wasn't going to do it. Um, I remember once we left the donkey there, took the cart off, found a different way to get home, and had to come back for the donkey later. Um, but but here's, here are these two donkeys, and there's this colt. And John tells us that it had never been ridden before. And here's Jesus. I don't know if the owner was training it to ride. You know, I was watching these videos on how to train a donkey to ride, and this guy put a saddle on it. First, he made it sniff, you know, the saddle and other things. Finally, he lays it on there and just lets it explore. Eventually, he cinches it up. Uh, I didn't even see how it got to the process of actually riding it, but just that was a lot. And so you've got uh, this donkey that's brought to Jesus and this donkey would choose to carry Jesus through a crowd of loud people into Jerusalem. This donkey wouldn't just be the animal that carries him, but it would provide a statement, a statement of peace. Matthew tells us that the gentle king comes offering peace. He says, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. And Matthew, when he, see, when he tells us this, he's pulling um, this very section out of the prophecy from Zechariah. Because according to Zechariah, the Messiah who was to come, it says, it says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. I don't picture righteous and victorious on a donkey, but he's on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah basically says he, he's pulling this from there. And, and as we look at this, going back to Zechariah's day, if we think about what he was saying back then, in Zechariah's day, the people were coming from, uh, the people of Israel were coming back from an exile. They were exiled to Babylon, and they were coming back. They came back and they were fasting, they were praying, they were wondering if God would soon set up the promised kingdom, if the Messiah would come and sit on the throne. When would this happen? So as they're, uh, as they're praying about this, Ze Zechariah and Haggai were two prophets that came and, and spoke God's words to them. Like all the prophets, they encouraged the people to turn back to God, to rebuild the temple, to live the right way to love truth and peace, to render true and sound judgments in their courts, to seek God, to be ready for the king. 
And so here, years later, Matthew is mentioning this very passage. After John had said, get ready. Jesus here comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey. He knows what he's saying. He is affirming some things. One, he's affirming he is the promised one that Zechariah talked about. He is the promised king. And secondly, he's saying that he's coming in peace, but it's far more than that because he's not just coming in peace, he's coming to offer peace. On one occasion, he said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. On another, he said, I didn't come to judge the world, but if I were to judge, I'd be right. Historically, if a king rode on a donkey, it meant he was coming in peace. When King Solomon, for example, took the throne, David, his dad, commanded that Solomon ride into town on a mule or a half donkey. It's not quite a horse. Um, It was a statement of peace. Jesus was coming in peace. He came to this world to serve. He came to this world to be judged in our place. On his way to this very event, before all of this happened, maybe it was between Bethany and Jerusalem, but uh, Matthew 20, the previous chapter, tells us this. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The death of the promised one was necessary in order to bring peace between God and man. Jesus knew this all along and still willingly chose to go to Jerusalem. Here on Palm Sunday, this crowd will proclaim him king. And within a few days, they will call out, crucify him. They will crown him king with a crown of thorns on a cross. The prophet Isaiah, in speaking about this future Messiah, this future redeemer, he says this about him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This was supposed to happen. You see, the price for sin in our lives is death. And the only way to make it right is for someone sinless to willingly choose to give his life. Jesus chose to do this. The gentle king chooses to become our peace. Another thing we see in this passage is how um, the disciples are honoring this approachable king, this intimate king. The disciples had spent the past three years with Jesus. To them, he was far more than just their friend. He was the one who taught them about how to live life. He had demonstrated who he was by all kinds of miracles, um, saving them, saving their lives. 
He demonstrated he had power over everything. If there was anyone who had the power to bring justice and peace in Israel, it was Jesus. He was their friend. And here, before Jesus enters Jerusalem, I don't know if they forgot the saddle or, you know, I'm not sure <laughs> what, but, but they want him to ride not just on the donkey. So they take off their cloaks. They want to show the worthiness of who he is. So they take off their cloaks and honor their king. Jesus, the Messiah. The crowd of people respond the same way. They honor Jesus as they spread their cloaks and palm branches under his feet. It's a large crowd. And not only do they do this, um, but, but they also praise Jesus with this phrase. This word appears over and over again, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us now. Save us now. Um, and they say it in three ways. At least this is how Matthew tells us. In three ways. First, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. They are boldly announcing his royal line. Not just his line, but that he is the son of David. He is, he is the promised one, the one who can save Israel. They're also saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of, a Lord, of the Lord. It's interesting because many questioned the authority of Jesus, especially in Jerusalem. A couple of years earlier, during the Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus came in, and as he walked in, he saw that the temple was filled with merchants. This was supposed to be a house of worship. He became jealous for for God's house, his father's house, and he kicked all the merchants out. And the Pharisees came and asked, by whose authority? Who do you think you are? Whose name do you come in? On another occasion in John chapter 5, they questioned him as well. The Pharisees came to Jesus, and they basically said, you know what? You are your only witness, and it doesn't count. You're coming in your own name. Who do you think you are? I love his response in this chapter because Jesus just says, you know what? I am my own witness, and I'm right. And then he says, and I'm not the only one. My father and all the works that I do that come from him, he is my witness. John the prophet who came speaking God's message, he is my witness. Moses, the one who you think is the greatest prophet ever, who gave you the law, who you think sent manna down from heaven, he is my witness. And all the scriptures in between, from Moses to John, that's my witness. You have it in your hands, but you don't want to listen. You don't want to believe. This is Jesus. If there was any question, if Jesus was sent from God, this crowd was boldly proclaiming that Jesus comes from God. And the last thing they said is Hosanna in the highest heaven. I don't know if they quite understand or understood what this meant. But this Jesus wasn't just 
a, a future earthly king, one who could save you now here on earth. But he, in a few days, would die and he would tr- go right into the presence of the Father and present full payment for mankind to become eternally saved. This is Jesus. And it's followed up by this odd question. This crowd is coming in from outside and Jerusalem responds. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? (laughs) Who is this? He had spent his whole ministry demonstrating who he was, his actions. All of scripture has answered, this is the Messiah. But knowing who he is over there and knowing who he is, receiving who he is, are two very different things. And so Jerusalem has to decide, do we accept Jesus as our king or do we reject him? And we know how that story ends and we'll go there in a few days. But the question for us today is, what does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? The gentle king still offers peace today. As we've seen in the book of Genesis, God is patient. He allows us to fail over and over again. We offend him over and over, and he patiently waits for us to repent and turn to him as our savior. God gently comes to you and offers peace. So what does this peace look like in your life? Are you carrying guilt, brokenness, so many kinds? You can experience true and real forgiveness from this brokenness that you might be chained to or that you are chained to. You can be free from guilt because he was wounded for you. Keep in mind that even though God is patient, eventually this patience will run out. Eventually we die and we have to meet the judge. Will we stubbornly hang on to what separates us from God? Or um, especially considering that he has given his own son to make it right. Will you come to Jesus and also cry out, Hosanna, save me now? If you already know Jesus as your savior, what does honoring the king look like in your life? In the example of Abraham, You know, last week, we went through that incredible story of Isaac and Rebekah, where a father chooses to make a wise decision concerning his son. He doesn't follow the cultural trend of just allowing him to find a wife among the locals, but he sends his servant off to a distant land, and and God leads this servant to the right place. He brings Rebekah back, and the story is amazing. The end of the story is like, uh, out of, I don't know, a, a, a great romantic movie, which I don't watch. Um, but he loves us. He pursues us. And he always wants what's best for us. He wants to lead us. Will we choose to make him the ruler, the king in our lives? The example I have, uh, I, I know this couple, Sebastian and Rita. 
Sebastian came to Christ years ago, but even after coming to Christ and having been involved in ministry, he turned his back on the Lord. And he turned to alcohol. He became an alcoholic. And he destroyed his family. The relationships between him and his children. And then the relationship between him and his wife. And I remember a couple years ago, he fell. I went to visit him at the hospital, prayed with him, and his wife would ask for prayer requests over and over and over and over again when we, when we would meet in small groups. And then one day he showed up. He sat right over here. And uh, we started talking. We just, started, just invited him into relationship. And uh, sometime, I think it was just before he showed up, he was actually on his way to go sell the house so they could just split up and each go on their way. And he says, I was on my way and I heard this voice. And basically said, son, I have something better for you. You don't have to do this. And he turned and he spoke to Rita and he said, I'm not doing this. I'm not throwing in the towel now. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on us. We're going to try it again. So they came back, and, and things started to change. He started to come back to the Lord, inviting God to lead him. And uh, over the past few months, the difference in their marriage is amazing. Their kids aren't quite sure what to make of it. And they're trying to figure out, what's going on with dad? He's present. Um, that's an example of what God's kingdom looks like when he comes into our lives and he changes us. God surely desires to be our friend, and yet he is king. He's done everything possible to be approachable. He calls you, he calls us family, he calls us friend. But what do we call him? Do we call him Lord? Hopefully, do we call him friend? And what does that look like? Because if I have a friend and I love a friend, I will spend time with my friend. And this is God's heart. He wants to have us willingly choose to walk with him, to obey him and follow him, and he wants to bless us. Sometimes, sometimes we say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll do anything you want, just just don't ask me to be a pastor. <laughs> yeah, I, I, growing up, I was a missionary kid. I wanted to be involved in ministry. I knew I wanted to follow the Lord. I, but one thing I didn't really want to do was become an elder or a pastor. And a few years ago, uh, being involved with Comunidad, um, Tom's right here, um, but I remember the brother's asking and just saying, would you consider this? And I prayed about it. And I felt like God saying, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And I love what I get to do. I love seeing God at work. He is a good God. And he is working. But not everybody's called to be a pastor. So maybe you're saying, okay, that's great for you, but it doesn't relate to me. Ah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. 
God sometimes calls us to give things up like our things or maybe don't take on so much work, not to take on so much work or to give my time, to choose to talk to people about things you maybe don't really want to talk about, maybe to face uh, an, a, an issue of bitterness and I have to go and, and talk to someone about that, something I did and what is God calling us to surrender? What is God calling us to do? Is he king in our lives? As I call the worship team up, as I call the worship team up, I want us to consider what does praising God look like in your life today? As I think about this crowd, you know, we see uh, Jesus being honored. But the last thing we see is that he's being praised. This crowd is praising him by recognizing who he is and saying it out loud. They're recognizing who Jesus is and they're just proclaiming it out loud. This is who he is. And my question to you, to me, is who is Jesus to you and me? Who has he been to you in your life? When you look back, where, have you, where can you see him? And as we move to worship, I'd like you to consider this word, Hosanna. Save us now. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you say this to him? Would you just in your mind speak to Jesus? Would you tell him, Jesus, save me? If you know Jesus and he's already saved you and you have a relationship with him, there are areas of your life that, in which he may be king already. But if you think he's saturated everything, <laughs> he's got so much more to go. And so he invites us to come and praise him, to praise him. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.